Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. So we have a, a very special guest on this episode. The most beautiful, lovely, talented guest we have ever had. Everyone say hello to my wife, Becky. Hi, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's a completely unbiased opinion, I'm sure. <laughs> we, <laughs> we're sharing uh, earbuds like it's 2004. We're sitting side by side, and she takes one earbud and puts it in her far side ear, <laughs> the one that's far away from me. And then I just give her the other one. And then one. she just hands me. And I just like it's her problem. <laughs> I just handed it to her, like, deal with this now. This is not, this is your fault. <laughs> so, Becky, why don't you? introduce yourself to our listeners and like tell them a little bit about yourself and like what you do and all that fun stuff. I'm a horn player and uh, trying to be an administrator of sorts. So uh, nonprofit mostly. Mm -hmm. And I just um, came back from Michigan, back to Mississippi. Thanks COVID-19. Yeah. (laughs) And discovered that my wife now has a whole zoo of animals living with her <laughs> whereas there was one cat when I left <laughs> yeah we started out with one cat and now we have two dogs and a cat I mean we should be specific we have a dog and a puppy <laughs> and one of my students cats had kittens and I really really stop <laughs> I know. <laughs> Tell us how you guys met. Well, <laughs> we were doing our doctorates at Florida State, um, and Becky asked me to play on her chamber recital, and we played the Beethoven octet. And then I caught her checking me out one day. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then, after that, I pursued her aggressively. And involved everybody I knew at the time. <laughs> and it took, what, a month or so yeah, before well, we got together? Yeah, I'm oblivious. <laughs> I didn't know I had checked you out at the time. 
I didn't know you were pursuing me, and I didn't know that everybody knew. <laughs> We've been together for eight years now. Uh, Nine? Uh-huh. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> Married for five. <laughs> Good. It's like a quiz. She always fails. <laughs> And it all could have started because you had like a stain on your shirt or something that Becky was like, <laughs> and now here we are. <laughs> so Becky, mm-hmm. I would love to hear your perceptions of like what it's like to live with an oboe player as someone who obviously you're a musician, but as a non-woodwind player, the world of reeds and all that fun stuff. Do you love your mouthpiece more after watching your wife's life? (laughs) I mean, I 100% feel good about my choice to not play a reed instrument. You can't really blame her. (laughs) Love you both. My number one perception of living with a double reed player is there is cane everywhere. (laughs) Everywhere. What's the funniest place you ever found a piece of cane? Good one. Uh, in my pocket, actually, I was, <laughs> and I wasn't home. I was teaching a horn lesson and suavely put my hands in my pockets for I don't know why and stabbed myself in the finger <laughs> with a piece of cane, <laughs> which I, of course, screeched about. Told my student what happened, and in true student form, they just blinked at me like I was crazy (laughs) because they were trying to do something like play the horn. (laughs) And now she's outing me for never cleaning up after myself when I shape cane. Um, Look at the floor right now. I know. It's Mm -hmm. just like tiny daggers all over the floor. I mean, the most common place to find them, obviously, is in your sock. Mm-hmm. I get that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, the dog's mouth. That's, <laughs> that's also common. But yeah, I'd say the, the, my pocket is probably the strangest place. Because I have no. I was wearing dress pants. It's like <laughs> I was just hanging around the reed desk in my dress pants. <laughs> Ooh, I have another good one. How many times have you guys played that Reinecke trio for oboe, horn, and piano? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> Uh, a handful, I yeah. would say. I can remember twice. twice. Have we done it more than two times? I don't know. I, I mean, think I'm going to go with like twice. officially twice, but I'm sure we messed around yeah. with it a few times. I think, yeah, I think it's twice. Do you play together a lot? All like three pieces. <laughs> I was just going to say, we've spent plenty of time on the internet Googling horn and oboe duets. And there's really not a lot. Composers, get on it. what is your favorite oboe piece like what do you love when she plays and then what's your least favorite what are you like oh my god she has a student doing this piece or whatever i mean honestly mozart was probably my least favorite Uh thing to listen to and Um, you always recognize the sense song do i yeah cool oh yeah i must like that one but wait, Galee, are you any better? Like, do you have horn repertoire that you love and know? Are you well-versed? Oh, let's see. I'm well-versed in the music of Paul Basler. <laughs> um, disclaimer, I did my master's with Paul Basler. So. And she did her <laughs> dissertation. And I wrote my <laughs> dissertation on him. So um, I am very familiar with the Strauss concertos. 
I am familiar with certain horn playing legends like Dennis Brain <laughs> and Stefan Door. Door. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so Becky, can you name famous oboe players? Uh, no, but usually she goes, <laughs> she goes, Yo, guess who we have on the pod today? And I'll, she'll give me some name and I'll be like, uh, I try to guess oboe or bassoon based on their name. <laughs> based on their name? Oh my God, that's awesome. <laughs> can you sing my noodle? No, but if I heard like a bunch of noodles, I would tell you exactly which one was yours. What about my reed crow? Sing it? You're a weirdo. Yeah, what I is that? Like, <laughs> what is she supposed to say? I'm looking at her like, you just want me to sound stupid on your podcast. Can you sing my crow? Yeah, don't worry. Everyone saw through that who's listening. So <laughs> sing my reed crow. Okay. Jackie, cut it out. Cut this part out. (laughs) Oh, I just love getting roasted. Love it. You invited me. (laughs) Is there a funny or embarrassing story? Because we always ask our guests funny or embarrassing story. Is there a roast you can give to Galit in front of our listeners? A funny story? Ooh, that's a good one. So we had only been together a few months and so we weren't living together or anything yet. And she calls me. It was like the first day of school. First day of school. It's the day of ensemble auditions. And she calls me and she says, I went for a jog and I took a fall. And she starts laughing. <laughs> I had bit through my lip. <gasps> I had been jogging and I tripped on nothing. And I fell and I landed on my mouth. Okay, but... Who says I took a fall? Alternate <laughs> <laughs> said I took a fall and she started laughing at me. In the meantime, I was bleeding everywhere. Okay, but I couldn't see you. <laughs> I didn't know. All I knew is you went for a run and you took a fall you like, took like a my fall. 90 year old grandmother. <laughs> what were you born in 1927? <laughs> It was pretty rough. I, for a couple of weeks afterward, the way the scab had formed under my lower lip looked like I had a goatee for a couple of <laughs> That's weeks. That's awesome. And we were pretty <laughs> freshly dating. <laughs> and I had just been gone for the summer. <laughs> Have you met my girlfriend? No, who's she? The one with the goatee. <laughs> <laughs> And then I had to walk around like the first day of school and you have to walk around with like a scab on your face like an idiot. (laughs) Your new girlfriend is like, oh God. Ooh, I know the perfect question to end with. Oh boy. Becky, Mm. have you ever confused my voice and your wife's voice? Because our listeners tell us that they cannot tell us apart. So what is your perception um completely different thank you (laughs) although in their defense there are plenty of podcasts out there where i don't know who is who (laughs) but you can hear my scream cackle a mile away exactly that's what i was just gonna say Galit's the ones that that is screaming (laughs) and cackling (laughs) and her voice going up and down all over the place (laughs) Jackie's the one in the background. You can practically hear her roll her eyes.
Barton Kane, revolutionizing gouged, shaped, and profiled bassoon cane with precision, consistency, and love since 2012. Leave the cane processing to them. Free up time to practice, take a romantic dinner cruise, or cuddle on the couch with your cat on a rainy day and listen to the Double Read Dish podcast. Enter coupon code Double Read Dish Rocks My World for free shipping on your next Barton Kane order. Visit www.bartonkane.com. Edmund Nielsen Woodwinds has been serving the Double Read community for 70 years. Nielsen sells a wide variety of oboe, oboe de mort, English horn, bassoon, and contrabassoon reeds and cane, as well as reed-making accessories, reed cases, and lafrex. And of course, they have the classic Nielsen wedge knife, which features a double hollow ground and choice of handle size. In addition, they have many other knives available. Nielsen has long been known for their large heckle bassoon vocal inventory. Fill out their online trial form to find the perfect heckle vocal for you. For all your double read accessory needs, Nielsen is ready to help you. We are so excited to speak with Peter Kolke, Associate Professor of Bassoon at Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music. Welcome, Peter. Thanks. Thanks to both of you for having me. It's going to be awesome. I would love to ask about how you started playing the bassoon. So uh, my journey with the bassoon didn't have a particularly um, oh interesting beginning. I My little sister decided in the fourth grade that she wanted to play an instrument. And I was in the sixth grade. And so I got dragged to band night um, at you know, the local high school or whatever it was. And, you know, I thought, well, gosh, she wants to play the flute. Maybe I'll just play something too. You know, she's my little sister. I can't let her, you know, be special in that way. I want to be special too. So, um, so I decided, you know, people were coming up and playing and nobody seemed interested in the oboe. So I decided I'm going to play the oboe. Um, So I, I picked up the oboe and we rented an oboe from the local music store And I, you know, I took my little um, plastic oboe to junior high and I was the worst little oboist. I was just so terrible. And um, there were, for some reason, there were three oboe players in my uh, junior high band. And one of them is actually Nora Lewis, who's the teacher at at Lawrence now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We've we've known each other for a very long time. So she was... um, so she was much better than I was at the oboe. So the uh, band director at one point uh, called me in and said, um, are you interested in trying something else? And I said, well, okay, you know, what are you? He said, well, I have a berry sax and a bassoon. And I said, well, okay, let me go ask my parents. Cause I don't know. Um, I certainly didn't know what a bassoon was. And so I went home and I asked my folks, uh, you know, what do you guys think? And, and neither of them are, are musicians or anything. So uh, 
my dad said, well, I played the saxophone, but the nuns back in Catholic school made me quit after six weeks or something like that. So I decided that I would go back and I would, I would redeem my dad and I would try the saxophone. And I got back to the band room the next day and I said, Mr. Keller, I'd like to try the Barry sax. And he said, oh, you're too late. I already gave it to somebody else. Here's the bassoon. <laughs> and that was that. So um, it's, it's, it wasn't like it just called my name. I heard the sound and I knew it was for me. I, it was just sort of dumb luck. Um, it was the last one left. It was the last one left. And it was just really fortunate that there was a lady who had just moved to town uh, who was a um, stay-at-home mom. She had three little kids. She happened to have a degree in bassoon. And she was looking for students. And he knew of her because he – I grew up in Naperville, Illinois, which is kind of a – it was a small town then. But there's a Naperville Municipal Band. And she was playing in the band. So he knew her. He conducted that. And so I got her information. So I was taking lessons with a bassoon player just about right off the bat, which was incredibly helpful and really lucky. So that was my start. And how did you decide to pursue the bassoon professionally? What ignited that interest to make it your life's work? Well, you know, it was one of those things that I, I loved – playing i loved performing and i what i really loved about it was the social aspect one of the first things my band director in junior high did was put us in a woodwind quintet and you know here we are a bunch of 12 and 13 year olds in a woodwind quintet we were just goofy and nerdy and having a, a great time and they were my friends and so because it was a social time the music was associated with, you know, those good social interactions. So as I was nearing um, college, I really thought, okay, music is going to be part of my life. Um, I was also into composing at the time. So I thought maybe I would go into composition, um, maybe into performance. And then my fallback <laughs> I pity my parents who had to listen to all this. My fallback was to be an English major and to be a writer. <laughs> so, so of the of the two career paths, I actually chose probably the more lucrative one, if right. you can believe that. Yeah. Um, so uh, when I got to college, uh, I you know I was an English and um, bassoon performance major but I was really interested in taking composition and it just, the more I got into composition, the more I realized I didn't actually enjoy doing the work for that as much. I enjoyed the practice room and playing the instrument and being around other people in chamber groups and large ensembles rather than being by myself in, um, you know, a room at a piano and then, giving the music to other people. So I decided to make bassoon the main focus and uh, I ended up letting the English degree go after three years um, because I wanted to graduate in four years rather than five. You know, this is the age of massive student loans. Um, mm -hmm. So I decided four years and uh, then I went on um, in bassoon and I decided that that was going to be, that was it. I was finding success with it and enjoying it. So um, here I am. So what happened after you graduated from your undergraduate in Lawrence? How did you get to now your position at Vanderbilt and your really amazing performing 
career? Well, it's it's been a really um, circuitous route, I suppose. Um, Lawrence is up in Appleton, Wisconsin. It's a great place. A lot of people know it now from the Double Read Conference. Um, I really loved it there. And for graduate school, I ended up going to Eastman um, in Rochester, where I studied with John Hunt for two years. And at that point, I was taking uh, orchestral auditions and um, really seeing what might be out there in the orchestral world for me. I was having some success, you know, I was sort of getting on sub lists and uh, I, my first actual audition success for real where I won the position was second bassoon in the Harrisburg Symphony. Um, and I got that right as I was leaving Eastman. Uh, so I started doing that, but I also went on because I felt like maybe orchestra wasn't going to be for me. I, I, enjoyed doing it, but I didn't necessarily see myself sitting in the orchestra as my life's work. Um, so I went on to Yale to study with Frank Morelli. And at uh, that time, it was um, a two-year second master's degree. Um, and, you know, and then you go on and you come back after three years to get your doctorate. Um, uh, you do an oral exam and a recital. Um, so I'm playing in the Harrisburg Symphony. I'm taking lessons with Mr. Morelli. I'm studying at Yale. And um, I'm thinking about taking auditions. And I decide, you know, maybe teaching positions are going to be something that I would like to look into because I feel like I, I'm an academic at heart. Um, I just love books and libraries and things like that. So um, I ended up interviewing for the job at West Virginia University. And that was John Hunt's old position. Before him, it was William Winstead. Terry Ewell taught there for a long time. So it had sort of a illustrious reputation um, in the bassoon world. So I got, um, I got an interview there, and I was offered the job. So I decided to take it. At the exact same time, I decided to enter a competition in New York called the Concert Artists Guild Competition. And it was one of these things where uh, I live close to New York, I'm going to move to West Virginia. Um, this is my last chance to do this competition if I want to do it. And so I sent in a tape, and frankly, it was not a very good tape, but I sent one in, and um, I think I just squeaked by into the live round. And so I went and did the live round, and it went well, and I got invited back for the final round. And, you know, it was just one of those things where uh, everything just went right that day, and I ended up winning the competition along with um, a chamber group called Antares, which was a clarinet, violin, cello, piano ensemble. We split the first prize. So I'm moving to West Virginia. And at the same time, I'm sort of about to start a career in New York being, you know, soloist, chamber musician and things like that. So it was sort of um, two very divergent paths happening at exactly the same time. Um, so, the academic path has taken me from West Virginia to University of South Carolina in Columbia, and then now to Blair School of Music at Vanderbilt, where I've been for, this is my eighth year. At the same time, sort of the performance path um, has taken me, you know, to do some solo concertos, 
uh, lots of chamber music all over. And uh, there's something at the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center, which is called the Bowers Program. And that's for young musicians to, um, they audition and then you can be part of the Chamber Music Society ensemble for, uh, I believe it's three years now. And I had auditioned for that and uh, on my second try was accepted into the program. And so I got to, I started playing with the Chamber Music Society. And at that time, Milan Turkovic was the more regular bassoon player, but he wasn't always able to come over. Um, and so I was getting called to do concerts. And since then, I've been playing with them pretty regularly for the last uh, 10, 15 years, something like that. So um yeah, it's been a it's been a wild, crazy um, path that I never I, I never anticipated my life being here. But I'm I'm always excited that it is. Uh, we want to dig into kind of different aspects of this really multidimensional path. But the first place I'd like to go when I think of your career, one of the first things that comes to mind is how actively engaged you are in new music and commissioning and recording. And so I'd love if you would talk to us a little bit about where this passion for new music came from and some of those efforts that you've engaged with in that arena. Sure. Um, Well, the passion for new music, you know, I was, I didn't grow up listening to classical music. It wasn't until I was about 13, 14 that I started, um, noticing classical music and paying attention. And one day in uh, near Chicago, um, there was a competition called the Illinois Young Performers Competition. And it was run by the Chicago Symphony at the time. I don't think it exists anymore. And the final round was broadcast on uh, the local PBS station. So you know, one night I'm flipping channels and I see these teenagers playing violin and piano and cello with Chicago Symphony. And I'm sort of riveted by this, you know, to think that young people can do this. And somebody came out and played the first movement of the Samuel Barber Piano Concerto. Now, I had never heard anything like that before. It wasn't Mozart. It wasn't Beethoven. It wasn't Mendelssohn. It wasn't band music. Um, it just blew my mind. It was really assertive and aggressive and um, brash, but also romantic. And I just fell in love with the piece. So then I started, we had a great public library in my hometown. I went and I started, you know, reading about Samuel Barber and looking at books and, and finding about other contemporary composers. And uh, so that was where, um, my passion grew. I guess I never realized that people were writing music today when I was a kid. Um, And I'll never forget, this was probably a really uh, important experience for me. Um, Our library had all these cassette tapes issued by Leonardo, which was a um, record label that produced works of women composers uh, so I was listening to all these pieces by women composers. And again, I don't know that it had ever occurred to me that women wrote music. And here I am 14 years old and I, my eyes are just being opened to, um, 
you know, it's not just, <laughs> it's not just Beethoven. It's not just dead German guys. It could be Americans. It could be women. It could be me. It could be anybody. Um, so from that uh, experience, I really got into following new music. And one of the um, most exciting experiences I had was when I was 17, I went downtown Chicago to hear the Grant Park Symphony Orchestra play. And they were doing a viola concerto by Tanya Leone. And I had heard of her and her music because she was on one of these Leonardo tapes. And I somehow got myself backstage. I don't know if I just, I, I didn't know that backstages had protocols or anything like that. Um, I, I just got myself backstage and I went up to her and I said, oh, you're Tanya Leone. I'm Peter Kolke. I play the bassoon and I loved your piece and I'm so excited. And I remember her saying, well, just keep practicing and you know, music will be part of your life. And so I've always remembered that. And so uh, fast forward 20 some odd years and I had some money um, to commission and I, of course, wanted to go to Tanya um, and commission a piece. So it's a lot of those formative experiences have driven my commissioning activity. Same thing with the Catherine Hoover piece for bassoon and piano called Journey. Um, she was another one of these composers who was on uh, these tapes. Um, and I had heard a piece of hers for four bassoons on the radio at one point and, and always remembered that. Um, Joan Tower, again, to um, meet her and work with her uh, and to ask her to write a concerto was, you know, uh, uh, I, I never thought she would, but but she did, and I'm so honored to be part of that. And I feel like um, with the new music pieces, if it's concerto, if it's chamber, if it's solo, it's not the first performance that counts. It's not even the the second performance that that I if I'm the commissioner that I give. It's the first performance that somebody else gives, and then the second performance that somebody else gives, and, and beyond, because that's when you know the piece is going to have a life of its own. And um, you know, when the Catherine Hoover piece, Journey, showed up as the required piece for the um, uh, the Meg Quigley competition a couple years ago, I mean that was just amazing for me um, to see that like this piece is part of the repertoire now and you know I wasn't the only one who commissioned it but um, you know I feel like I, I helped give birth to that thing and I'm I'm so glad that I can help build the repertoire because we need it <laughs> badly absolutely yeah. absolutely your career is so diverse and it seems like you say yes to a lot of stuff like yeah. teaching, yes. Performing, yes. yes. Commissioning, yes. <laughs> Traveling, yes. yes. Um, I think that speaks to the direction that uh, the classical music career is going, where it's not so much um, pigeonholing and right. specialization. It's more diversifying yourself and capitalizing on all of your strengths and combining different elements to make your own career into something completely unique and special. Right. And I would love to hear your thoughts on that and what you think that young people can do now to ready themselves for uh, a career now. So I've thought a lot about this and... Um, I've thought about what in my background has led me to 
my career that has occurred outside of the practice room. Um, you know, would I be able to do this job if I couldn't um, interact with people or if I couldn't write decently or if I couldn't, um, you know, speak from the stage? And so those are the things that I feel like students today need to give thought to as much as um, the, their practice time. They need to be able to write well. They need to be able to write grants, uh, especially to be read by people who have no idea what the bassoon is. Um, you know, I recently uh, wrote a grant application to get a piano reduction made of something, and I actually needed to tell the grant reviewers what a piano reduction was and why it was useful and and all these things that we take for granted. So you really have to um, be able to step out of your outside of yourself and explain what you're doing to people who know nothing about the field. Um, you have to be able to talk to people and engage with audiences and engage with people off stage as well. Um, there's a public private divide um, that is shrinking because of social media. And so when you're off stage, you're still kind of on stage to a certain extent. So you need to be able to navigate social media. You need to um, be continue to make yourself part of the conversation. You need to show up at Double Read conferences and and um, and other things like that. Networking is a big deal. However, I say that, and I never want students to fall into the trap of that's all they need to do to be successful. Because frankly, if you network really well and you talk really well and you write really well, really well but then you don't play very well, um, you're actually not going to get that far. You have to have the goods to back up everything else. So it's a delicate balance but at the same time, really exciting that, um, you know, we're becoming non-specialists. We're just doing everything, and it gives everyone a lot of opportunities um, to explore different avenues of their lives. And to that extent, I guess, actually read, um, like, the news and nonfiction books and novels and, and participate in um, – you know, going to art museums and know what the state of art is in the world around you, because we have to be part of that. And for so long, we kind of see ourselves as segregated from that, where we're in the concert hall and the practice room. And we actually need to find our location amongst all the art forms and the humanities. Um, and then the second thing is, uh, I would say to all students, is... Um, be a nice person. <laughs> and that sounds really, um, really simple, but everybody remembers the jerk and they never want to play with that person again. Everybody also remembers the person who was wonderful to work with. And yeah, they maybe missed a couple of notes, but they were so pleasant. They showed up on time. They were prepared. Um, that's who you want to be. Um, and so you want to be responding to emails. You want to be showing up on time. Um, you don't want to be complaining about reads in rehearsal. You can outside of rehearsal, of course. Um, so it's those things about being a good colleague that come in really, really handy later in life. 
With your interest in new music and activity, are there any, you spoke of, you know, the gratification of seeing your commissions kind of enter into the standard repertoire. Are there any hidden gems that you think deserve to have that experience that maybe aren't on the radar of the bassoon community as much as they deserve to be? So one piece that comes to mind right away is, is something that I did commission, and it's by Gordon Beeferman. It's not a household name, but he wrote the hardest piece I've ever played. Um, it's about 12 minutes long. It's inspired by the Occupy Wall Street movement. So it's got this political angle to it, although um, you can perform it so it's not doesn't come across as being a um, protest statement, although it was inspired by the protests. And it's, you know, full of quarter tones. I mean, it's crazy stuff. I had to sort of teach my tongue to wiggle on both sides of the reed up and down. Uh, it, and I just love performing that piece. Um, it's crazy. So I, so it's called Occupy Bassoon. It's by Gordon Beeferman. Um, go to his website. Uh, it's a, it's a fantastic piece. As far as other pieces that uh, I, I wish were performed more often, one of my absolute favorite pieces is the Charles Kechlin three pieces for bassoon and piano. It's, um, it's about 10 minutes. Uh, the first two are just incredibly beautiful. And I've only performed the thing once because I think that first piece is really hard. If, for those of you who don't know it, it's basically like long tones, F sharp, and high B, you know, <laughs> it's just like the worst notes possible, but it's so gorgeous when it's done well. Um, so those are two pieces I really, um, I really love, and I hope that more people um, take them up. And of course, the Previn Sonata, I'm surprised that more people don't play that because that is really a fantastic piece. And um, I would think it, it's part of, it should be part of every bassoonist repertoire. I think it's one of the great bassoon sonatas, certainly since Cessons. So you have a lot going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of traveling, a lot of teaching, and a lot of performing. And how do you balance your life so that you don't end up ripping your hair out or throwing your reed tools across the room? I knew you were going to ask me about this. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is the hardest one. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so work-life balance, and I've done a lot of thinking about that. Um, for musicians, it's it's almost an imaginary construct to a certain extent, because when we wake up some mornings, you're thinking about music, you're thinking about Mozart Concerto. When you go to bed at night, whatever piece you're working on is running through your head, for better or for worse. Um, you know, I'm one of those people, like after a concert, I can't sleep because I have these passages going through my head over and over and over again. And so uh, to a certain extent, our work is our life and our life becomes our work. And uh, they're so entwined, which makes it really hard to distance yourself uh, at times from the reed table and from the instrument. So what I have done um is I only practice in my studio at Vanderbilt. I don't actually practice in my own home. I feel like when I go home, then I'm home. And, you know, I can think about music. I can do emails. I can do things like that. 
but I can't put my face to the instrument. Um, does that mean I spent a lot of hours in my office? Yeah, but <laughs> it means when I go home, that part of it is done. And what I have found that uh, is really useful for me is I live about you know, two miles from my office at school and it's very walkable. So that good 40 minute walk each way in the morning and in the afternoon really can help clear your mind. So physical activity helps a lot. I'm a real um, avid reader. So I've always got a novel or um, something that I'm doing, uh, crossword puzzles, you know, those sorts of things just to keep your mind, because your mind is always engaged, at least mine is. Um, and so sometimes I just need to focus it on a non-musical thing. So that's what I would say about work-life balance. It is very difficult. Um, and there are times, yeah, where I, I have to admit, have I thrown my read tools across the room? Mm, maybe not all the way across the room. But... <laughs> you know, I, I do have a read actually that's living um, right now under the piano because that's where I do it. So, yeah, I'll dig it out someday. I'll find it. Maybe someone will find it. You know, archaeological dig. What on earth was this? Um, oh my god! Yeah, this is what we did back in the 21st century. Ah, uh, so. A lot of what you're describing actually sounds familiar to me from a book that I read called Deep Work by Cal Newport. Have you read that one? No, I'm not familiar with that. Okay. Well, you're, what you're talking about, about having a place that you practice and the time that you practice and walking and having the physical activity and the brain space to think about and organize your thoughts while you're walking, mm -hmm. um, he talks about that in his book. And so it seems to me that you do a lot of deep work and I would love to ask what your practice process is and how you make the most of your practice time. So um, practice time um, for me, I, I'm one of those people who really likes to do like uh, the two and a half hour or three hour long session rather than break it up into little chunks. However, that's not what real life will allow sometimes. So um, normally what I do is if I'm, when I'm working on reads, reads are the first thing in the day because I want to make reads for um, my freshest, my best self rather than reads at the end of the day. And we all know that reads at the end of the day, we start scraping and working on reads and we end up going too far because we've made them for ourselves as tired performers rather than awake performers. So reads, yeah, so reads always are, if I'm spending time on reads, it's the first thing I do. Um, the problem with that, however, is sometimes you get bogged down in reads and you don't move on. So I will often set myself a time limit and I, you know, thank goodness for the alarm on the cell phone. And I, I use that thing and I'm like, oh, alarm went off. I'm done with reads. Now on to the next thing. So when I actually get into the, the practicing, I do, you know, I still do long tones. Uh, the Giampieri book, uh, number one, Giampieri is all your major and har uh, melodic minor scales up and down. I still do those every day. Um, if I play nothing else, I'm going to play Giampieri. I do a lot of... Um, 
tongue finger exercises, sort of like Ubradu, um, kind of like the Kovar daily studies, where I'm just sort of trying to make sure tongue and fingers work, coordinate uh, well. Um, yeah, so I spend quite a bit of time doing the technical warm-up stuff before I get to literature. And when I do finally get to the liter literature that I'm working on, uh, I usually will leave myself post-it notes at the end of a practice session in, in the music itself or, you know, somewhere where I can see it's like, this is what you're going to be working on today. So I kind of at the end of a practice session, give myself a plan. Um, and I will often say, you know, you did it on Thursday at quarter note equals a hundred. So, you know, you better be able to on Friday go a little faster than a hundred um, by the end of the day. So I'm, um, I try to be as efficient as possible. Um, and I, when you get in the zone with practicing, you sort of don't notice the time go by. Uh, but at the same time, at the end of the day, I always like to just play. I think that's really important. And that's something I got from um, Frank Morelli. I remember going into a lesson with him and just being really frustrated with everything. You know, I just feel like everything was going wrong. And I remember him saying, what do you just love to play? And I said, well, my favorite thing to play is probably the second movement of the Weber concerto. And he just said, well, just play it. And so at the end of the day, if things have been rough or, you know, I haven't gotten as much done as I wanted to do, I just go back to something that I really love to play and remind myself, okay, I love to play this. This is what makes me really happy. And I will get to this point with this piece that I'm working on, hopefully, um, and I'll get that same feeling out of this piece. And I think everybody has their own go-to piece, but I do feel like practicing and playing are different things, and we do need to – we can't deny ourselves that little bit of playing, um, you know, because uh, that's what really probably brings us the most joy at the end of the day. I love that. Um, so we're a double read podcast, so we've got to do the yeah. nitty gritty and talk about reads. So I'd love to hear, uh -huh. um, our listeners love to hear about people's setups, like what shape you use and kind of general approach. And then also if you have any read making advice that you'd love to pass on. So as far as my reads go, I like the Rieger number two shape. I like, mm -hmm. I'd like wide and um, I feel like I have more control. And if I want to have a narrower shape, I can always create it from a number two shape. You know, if I find that I need to play at a higher pitch level uh, or something, something like that, um, I can do that, but I, you can't put cane back on a reed. <laughs> mm -hmm. You can take cane away. And so if I need to narrow the thing, I can narrow the thing. That is certainly possible. So, I, I start wide and I go in from there should I need to. Uh, the other thing I would, uh, the, the one tip that has left me in really good stead, it was from John Hunt. I mean, one of the many tips from many teachers over the years, but the one I, I, I come back to is the second wire not being as round as I think it should be. Uh, you know, just flattening that second wire a little bit will just make the crow a little bit lower and it helps immensely with pitch. And uh, in my experience, if you can't play in tune, no one wants to play with you. So uh, most of the groups I play in play at 440. I know that uh, pitch is sort of rising in different places across the country, but 
I aim for 440. I feel like my instrument was meant to be at 440. So that's the goal. And frankly, it's much easier to come up than it is to go down all the time. So uh, I would I would rather start at pitch um, or even a center to below uh, what I'm making the read, knowing that I can come back up. So that's that's how I gauge the reads. But it's got to be able to respond and it's got to be able to play in tune at 440. Um, and usually that means a wider shape and it means a flatter second wire. That's great advice coming from the oboist. I don't yeah, know what I the was, wires You don't do, know what you're talking so. about. You don't know what I'm and, and for me, uh, I should, I, I don't know if your listeners are interested, but I have never learned how to make a turban ever. So all my reads, I have students come in and I had a student, bless her heart. She, oh, that's such a Southern thing to say, bless her heart. She showed me how to make a turban and I, I did it once. And when she was showing me and that was the last time I did it. So, um, so I don't make turbans. I just have these sort of colorful little, um, pieces of you know thread and i use silk thread by the way mark goldberg started me on that oh. um, and it i don't know if it if it's a psychological thing but i do think it makes a difference because the silk does have a little bit of um it, it's actually uh, the polyester or the nylon can pull you know you can it's got a little bit of elasticity in it and the silk is just really strong so um it, yeah the silk just uh doesn't sort of impede the vibrations in the tube as much. So I'm into silk thread these days. Interesting. That I can try. <laughs> try that. Yes. Yeah, see what you think. In your teaching, is there a point or two that you find yourself saying over and over and over again that you wish all bassoon students would do? Well, the point about playing in tune is really important. And, and, the way I like to think about playing in tune is use your best sound because your best sound is more likely than not your most in tune sound. Now there are certain notes on the bassoon that that is not true for such as low D, but our ears know if somebody's out of tune just by the timbre, right? You can tell if somebody's sharp or flat just because they don't, the sound isn't good. Uh, so if we can train our ears to find the best sound, we're also training our ears to find the most in tune sound. So I like to work with students on pitch in terms of um, resonance and in terms of their ears rather than using their eyes on a tuner. A tuner is really useful, but at the end of the day, we have to be able to play in tune without the tuner on our stand. So, um, so opening up your ears to really listen to yourself is important. And then uh, the other thing that I say a lot is you have to be your own best teacher, which means you have to come up with practice techniques that work for you. So one of my goals is to get all of my students to develop a system for both identifying what's going wrong and also fixing what's going wrong. Because sometimes identifying what's going wrong is actually much harder than we think. You know, we've all had a passage that if we start in the middle, it's fine. But if we back up a bar, things go wrong. Uh, why is that? Well, there's probably something in that bar you just added 
that's causing hand position problems or causing tongue finger coordination problems or who knows. Um, but until you can figure out exactly what's going wrong, it's really hard to fix things. So I spend a lot of time with my students talking about, okay, you know, you know that it's not, it's not working. I know that it's not working. Can we figure out together what's gone wrong? Once we do that, it's easy to figure out a way to practice around um, that problem and to bring it back in to make it, uh, you know, part of your technique or, or fix whatever's gone wrong. So, um, yeah, you have to just be your own best teacher because, you know, for most teachers, we only see you an hour a week for your lesson. And that's it's nothing. So so you have to do a lot of the work on your own in the practice room. And that's part of your education is just figuring out how to do that efficiently and effectively. So we've been told this question is unfair and you've already shouted out several pieces that you love, but as you think across uh -huh. solo rep, chamber rep, orchestral rep, what are some of your favorite pieces to play? Beethoven's ninth symphony is a piece that I could play every day and never get bored. I think, um, I just love that piece. Uh, I remember playing it for the first time and how tired I was at the end of it. You know, it's, you just nonstop playing for like 70 minutes. Um, but sitting in the orchestra and having all that sound around you. And I have to admit, I love Bolero. I love it. And I don't even have to be playing the solo part. I love playing the second part. It doesn't matter. I just love being in the orchestra for that piece. Just all that sound around you is just so, um, so exciting. Um, so, yeah, that's probably my guilty pleasure. I know a lot of people don't like playing Bolero. but I, I was going to say controversial. controversial. I know, I know. I just, <laughs> yeah, I just, yeah, I love being in the midst of that sound. Um, as far as chamber music goes, it's uh, that's Mozart quintet with wind, piano and winds just never gets old. Every time I play it with new people, it becomes a new piece. Um, it's just, it's really incredible. I also love the Mozart Sonata for bassoon and cello, which may or may not be really by Mozart. I think it's got to be by Mozart because it's so great. Um, I love playing that piece. It's so much fun. And uh, it just treats the instrument so well. Um, and then uh, the Nielsen Quintet is just up there with Beethoven 9 for me. Um, it's one of those pieces where actually I don't know that I like listening to it as much as I like playing it. Um, you know, we all have pieces like that. So those are some of my go-to favorites. Oh, and the Soldier's Tale, Stravinsky Soldier's Tale. Um, there's never a time I've, I've done that where I haven't thought, wow, what an amazing experience. I, I'm so lucky that I get to play this piece. I'm so grateful that he wrote a bassoon part in it. And Poulenc Trio, I guess I could go on. Poulenc Trio, I love, you know, there's so many pieces that I love. So to all of them, all of them. Yeah, pieces. yeah. But, um, as far as the solo, solo repertoire, I love Joan Towers' Concerto. I think it's just fantastic. The Weber Concerto is amazing. The Sasson Sonata, I'll just, I'll never get bored of that one. Uh, Previn Sonata always brings me so much joy. Uh, the new Mark Antony Turnage piece for bassoon and string quartet is really incredible. Um, there's only a few pieces that I really don't like where I see it coming and I'm like, oh no. Tell us, um, no, just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, I, I argue with people. It's like, what's your least favorite piece to play? You know, and I got in big trouble once with somebody. Oh, it was, yeah, it's like, oh, that it was a concerto. And I was talking to a person who played the instrument that it was a concerto for. I'm like, oh, yeah, that piece. I don't know why people like it. I just, ugh. And I don't think she's spoken to me since. I mean, that just ended that relationship right there. Yeah. Was she an oboist? No, no. It was a string player, actually. Yeah, it was one of their most, yeah, it was beloved piece that everyone loved. Everyone minus one. Yes, exactly. Actually, since then, I found somebody else who doesn't like it. So I feel like there's two of us now in that, that pile. Would you share with us a favorite memory from being on stage? I guess one memory that uh, that I just, I think, you know, this can't possibly have happened to me. It was just so amazing. Was when I played a, it was my New York debut recital at Weill Hall. And this was 2002. So um, an awfully long time ago. And Elliot Carter had written two pieces that I was playing. One was a premiere one was just a New York premiere. It was a bassoon and viola duet. And he came to the concert and, you know, you look out in the audience and it's a small hall. You can see people in the hall and to see not only my parents in New York at Carnegie hall, but like a couple rows behind them, Elliot Carter. Uh, I was just so humbled um, by, by that, you know, one of the great composers of, of our time and any time is sitting there and I'm on the stage of Carnegie hall and my parents are here to see this. And um, it was just such a magical uh, experience. And I I will never forget that. Um, I'll also never forget uh, the time I was about to walk off, walk out on stage to do Harold Meltzer's double concerto for two bassoons and strings, which is called full faith and credit, which is a great piece. And I can't remember where I was, but all of a sudden I hear this boing (laughs) come from my bassoon. You know, I'm about to walk on a stage. There's no turning back. And I just like uh, hoping for the best. And, you know, it was uh, just a tension spring. It it has your low G key on the bassoon. And it's one of those things where like, it can still work without, it doesn't quite work as well, but at least if you're at the right angle, it still works. And so we got through the piece and then I went backstage and figured out what had gone wrong. But yeah, I'll never forget that. Like the fear. Um, It's like, well, now or never, here we go. And just your heart drops into your feet. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. But we always remember the things like that. You know, I was about to go on stage for Weber concerto and I, I reached into my, uh, my reed bag or something and I cut myself and my thumb right in the middle of my thumb as I'm about to go on stage and I'm looking for a Band-Aid and I'm trying not to bleed on the bassoon. And at the time you're in seventh grade and you drop your boot joint on your toe and you break your toe, you know, you remember those things. <laughs> Did you really? Perhaps. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. That Elliot Carter Carnegie Hall story is pretty epic. So you're making me feel a little bit better that you like had all these embarrassing things happen too. Cause I, <laughs> Oh yeah. Playing the, bass- playing the bassoon is not glamorous. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> what things do you have on the horizon that you're excited about? 
for the fall, I'm going to be on academic leave from the university, and I'm going to do a record with the Calador String Quartet, and we're going to record the turnage um, piece uh, called Massa Rosa for bassoon and string quartet, Joan Tower, Red Maple for bassoon and string quartet in that version, piece by Russell Platt, the quintet for bassoon and strings, and then there's a new piece being written uh, for me right now for bassoon and viola by Paul Lansky, which is going to go on that record. So uh, that's the big project for the fall that I'm really excited about. That sounds wonderful. Well, I'm. it's something that I've wanted to do for a long time. And finally, Vanderbilt is um, supporting me by giving me the time off to really dig into the music, really practice, really spend some time, you know, working on that. And, and they've put up some money and hopefully some other grant money will come through and uh, <laughs> we'll go from there, you know. Well, Peter, thank you so much for spending an hour with us. It's been wonderful to talk to you, and we're so grateful that you were able to share your thoughts and philosophies on music with us and our listeners. It's my pleasure. It's hard to believe it's been a whole hour. I could just I keep know, talking to you guys. So You're great. Fast. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It really has been so much fun. Thank you so much. We hope you loved that interview and want you to join us on our social media platforms. We are available on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you can listen on Google Play, Spotify, iTunes, uh, SoundCloud. Uh, everywhere. All of them? All of them. We're everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Becky, who do we have joining us on the next episode of Double Read Dish? You have Celeste Johnson, who is the Associate Professor of Oboe at the University of Missouri, Kansas City Conservatory. And I definitely knew she was an oboist based on her name. I guess Ooh. right. <laughs> <laughs> Becky, it's time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads and clean up your cane. <laughs> <laughs>